Hey, everybody. Welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. Longtime followers of Artist Soapbox are familiar with Mara Thomas. Mara was the very first person I interviewed all the way back in September 2017 when we talked about her play, Yes to Nothing. Since then, she's been on the podcast as guest and interviewer several times and always shares her vulnerability and humor in a way that listeners and I treasure. See links to those episodes in the show notes so you can listen back. Mara Thomas is currently working on her second original script, Year of the Monkey, a Delta Boys Theater Company production that will be performed at The Tank, New York City from June 13th through 22nd, 2019. So if you're up New York City way, then check it out for sure. In this episode, we discuss creative process, the inspiration for Year of the Monkey, Mara's long-distance collaboration with director Caitlin Wells, and the artist residencies they attended. We discuss horror as a genre for the stage, war in the jungle, and hierarchy and feminine intuition on the battleground. Mara Thomas is an actor, playwright, writer, musician, and teaching artist based in Durham. For Artist Soapbox, she blogs monthly and co-facilitates workshops focused on creative accountability and functional feedback. A local musician for over 15 years, Mara also makes noise in the punk groups Bandage and Cold Cream. After we recorded our conversation, I emailed Mara for clarification about the gender of her characters. I wish I had asked more specifically about that in the moment in order to use language that was appropriate for what she wanted as a playwright, but I didn't, so I'm including it now. In response to my question, she wrote, quote, The character descriptions do not have any mention of gender, but casting women and women plus is definitely the intention. Women Plus means inclusive of cisgender women, femmes, non-binary, gender non-conforming, and trans folks, end quote. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Mara. Hello. How are you? I'm great, Tamara. Thanks so much for being on the podcast again. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. So today we're talking about your second full-length play, titled Year of the Monkey, and it is described as part devised play, part surreal horror show centered on a squadron of warriors who use their feminine intuition, rage, rituals, and nature power to wage war. That's quite a description. <laughs> just, just that. <laughs> just hanging out. <laughs> Normal stuff. So let's talk about <laughs> the inspiration to write this particular piece. Sure. Yes. Uh, well, the very early like seeds of inspiration um, came out of my interest in horror, um, horror movies. I've long been a horror movie person. And as I've been doing more theater, realizing I haven't necessarily seen horror on the stage. And what might that look like to manipulate an environment in such a way through lighting design and sound design that you really prime people's nervous systems to be scared and then scare them. And, you know, in this consensual way, like people go to a horror movie, they know it's scary. So they're going in like ready to be scared and ready for the 
you know, the people, someone to jump out from behind the door. But how does that how is that different when you're in a room with real actual humans? And just as I was, you know, rolling that thought around in my head, thinking about what's scary, what is scary to me, what's scary to other people, you know, war to me is terrifying. The thought of, you know, being in war with people and killing people. And that then led me down a rabbit hole to Vietnam, which is something that I've been interested in my whole life. So once I landed on that, my brain just started to go crazy. Like, oop, yep, I could spend some time on this. This mm-hmm. is feeling right. So you started with Vietnam and exploring that war, but the play is not actually set in a specific war or era. Is that correct? That is correct. And that was, you know, I didn't want people coming in going, oh, this is a Vietnam play. It's not. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very much inspired by that era and being in a jungle. But I didn't want it to be tied to a specific place or times. I want people to come in, you know, not with these preconceived notions of, well, that didn't happen in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Like, well, it's not literally about that. But Mm -hmm. it has served as major source of inspiration for me. Was there something about that war, though, that you found particularly compelling as opposed to any of the other numbers of wars that we've experienced globally? Yeah. For whatever reason, from the time that I was a very young child, I have been interested in that war. I think partly because it's my parents' generation growing up in the shadow of that war. Uh, it informed so much of the media that mm-hmm. was you know, part of the landscape of my youth. I, I specifically remember, I think Platoon won the Oscar for Best Picture in like 1986. And they had a TV edited version, you know, on eight, you know, back when we had three right. channels. Right. And I used to t- tape all the movies off TV all the time. Uh, they, they had Platoon on, you know, NBC. And I taped it. I was like seven years old. And I watched it over and over and over and over again. And I think part of it for me, you know, again, being from my parents' generation, I had this fascination with the 60s. That like, wow, this is when all these amazing things were happening, the civil rights movement and the women's movement and all the great music that was coming out and a chronic feeling of my life. I was born at the wrong time. All the cool stuff has already happened. And then as I got older, still fascinated, still like, you know, throughout my whole life watching Vietnam movies, reading those books, seeing that conflict as such a messy, you know, it isn't clear cut. It is, you know, all war is messy. All war, there's no winner in a war. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But in Vietnam, it was, why are we here? What are we doing here? We thought in 1963 it was this one thing, and now in 1969 it is something completely different. And there was just so much upheaval. And depending on what your rank was in the armed services, you might have a very different rationale for why you're there mm-hmm. and, and the, the, the draft and people there who didn't want to be there at all. Mm-hmm. And on and on and on and on. Um, but a, another inspiration about Vietnam when I was gearing up to, to write this and wa- re-watching some of these movies that you are know, really important to me, like Full Metal Jacket and Platoon and The Deer Hunter, if you were a Hollywood actor in the 80s, <laughs> a male Hollywood actor, you were in a Vietnam movie. Right. Everybody was. And so me, as not a male Hollywood like, where are the opportunities for women to go to the Philippines mm-hmm. and to, like, do boot camp and all that cool shit? Like, I want to do that. That sounds awesome. 
how might I respond if I'm out there in the in the jungle? Mm-hmm. Yes, in a contained, you know, we're here shooting a movie, but you're also in the jungle, right. and there's real things to contend with. And anyway, right. But these are questions that the characters in your play are asking themselves. This is not. This is not what I thought it was. Why are we here? What are we doing? Where are we going? Who am I as a result of being involved in this conflict and doing things that I never thought I would do as a warrior? So that kind of brings me to a question about the choice to have your soldiers, your warriors, not be men. And you talked a little bit about just from a from an acting perspective, like giving opportunities for people to step into roles they might not be cast in. But are there other reasons that you chose uh, in, instead of kind of reenacting that Vietnam, Hollywood, all the men in the squadron experience that you decided to go another way by really emphasizing the kind of the feminine response and intuition? I think. For me, I have to maybe showing my limitations as a writer, at least one that's still very much learning. I have to write from my perspective to some degree. And I think placing women or at least, you know, non-male identified actors in that kind of situation, female bodied people, you have all of the circumstances of war and these other things. You know, from the most basic, women menstruate. Mm-hmm. How are you going to deal with that when you're in the jungle? Mm-hmm. What do you, you know, that's... Peri- in, periods are real life. Periods are real life. Like, right. it's, you know, just small, mm-hmm. seemingly small things like that. Um, and I think perhaps, you know, I can't say that I do any of this consciously. It's sort of connecting the dots after the fact. But I am, I am interested in having those types of actors, women or, you know, female-bodied actors, non-male-identified actors, I'm really interested in seeing, you know, whether it's women or non-binary or gender-fluid actors shine a light on the hierarchies or the, the systems and structures. You know, how do we look at it differently when those kinds of words are coming out of mm-hmm. a woman's mouth mm-hmm. versus a man's mouth? You know, thinking about like the drill instructor from Full Metal Jacket and, you know, what a it, it's I find those scenes very captivating. And like, what would that be like to to see a woman really rip into somebody like that? And then it's also a, you know, maybe a commentary on the way that women do that to each other, the way that we do it to ourselves, the way we speak to ourselves. I'm interested in playing with some of those uh, preconceived ideas. You know, we, we, we're used to seeing these stories told in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So how does it challenge our preconceived ideas just by having different people in the room? Right. So for me, as a woman approaching uh, war, this is how a soldier behaves. This is how a drill instructor behaves. And you break people down. You push them to their limits. You know, there are certain rules and regulations that you absolutely must follow. And there's a certain there's a sort of undercurrent of violence, right? Even though you're all on the same team, the I think the threat of external violence finds its way into the unit. Um, and so in reading your play, 
I see, at least in parts of it, this same sort of reenactment of the traditional way of making war, at least as Americans, the traditional way that we approach making war. And then you question that through the course of the play. So do you think there's another way to do this? (laughs) Or is that the question? Well, I think that's the question we are all grappling with to some degree, mm-hmm. maybe. In, you know, all oh, that's such a broad generalization. But I think that is something that is very much on my mind, speaking broadly about the year 2019 and who are we as a culture and what are we doing? Mm-hmm. You know, what are we doing? <laughs> haven't, haven't we learned? Mm-hmm. Well, and this idea of hierarchy, which I, I heard you mention before, but I think is also throughout the play is like, what does hierarchy mean in 2019? Is it still useful? And mm-hmm. and is there another way to do it? And I think you find that in your play, but my understanding is that it also extends to the process that you have, have undergone with the development of the play. Could you talk about that a little? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the archetypes that interested me just from character standpoint in this straight up from Platoon and, and you know, other war movies, you have the one leader who is the the traditional top down do what i say shut up take the pain and the other type of leader who can see your unique strengths as an individual and how you may uniquely contribute to this unit to its greater objective but that you're going to do that differently than anybody else and how can i make you step into yourself more completely as opposed to I'm going to break you down and make you in my image. Mm. I'm going to make you become who you actually are. Um, and, you know, the the process around the show, Caitlin Wells, my collaborator, is a you know company member of Delta Boys, and their philosophy is breaking down hierarchy in process and in product. And for most of their shows, no one is identified as a director. No one, you know, it's a very collaborative ensemble. And this is slightly different because this is Delta Boy's first show in New York. So we're, you know, in certain ways, you know, like, yes, I'm listed as the writer. Yes, Caitlin is listed as the director. But what she primarily has been doing is inviting people into the room, really being intentional about asking asking them for their unique viewpoints, their the way they look at the world, what do they think of when they think about war, when they think about being a predator, when they think about being prey, you know, any of these things we, you know, sort of want people to start playing with and these ideas and using their input to inform the this shape and the structure and and what this piece becomes that it's about community building. It isn't about, um, this is like Mara's ego project Mm. or, you know, not at all. This is actually about finding people who want to work this way, whose voices may have not been given time and space to develop and saying, we value you. Mm -hmm. Join us. We want to know. You you are here because you bring something that only you can bring. Mm Let's practice building this world together. So the the Year of the Monkey is described as part devised, and you have a script that I have seen. Where does the the devising part come in? Are those are those moments in the play of group movement, or how does that how does that translate? Yeah, absolutely. So you know they're they're spaced throughout the story. 
And, you know, in certain cases, it's showing, you know, what does a cohesive, you know, when we think about a militaristic unit, you know, moving in unison and that like showcasing what that looks like. And then over the course of the show, how does that break down? Mm. How does defiance start to creep in? And what does that look like? You know, while you're still trying to operate within this system, but coming to new realizations as a human person that I, I now have to I don't really buy in to the degree that I did on page five. Mm-hmm. Um, also, some of the devised moments are around grief and loss. This is war. People will die in the show. Characters will die. Mm-hmm. And how do the other characters deal with that? And the way that we as humans, all of us, deal with grief in our own unique ways. And it can be completely debilitating or it can be... It can be everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, debilitation is one end of a spectrum and another end is I, I see and recognize the preciousness and the finiteness of life and I'm going to Im- let that embolden me to be who I am or take a chance, whatever it might be. I love this idea. I feel like I'm nerding out a little bit <laughs> as a playwright, but I think that <laughs> setting a play in an active battle situation is so interesting because you have the tension of questioning, like, I don't think this is the way this is supposed to go. I want to do this differently. And also I'm trying to grieve and all of that is happening, but you must keep going. You can't be like, time out. I, (laughs) we need to process, you know, like I need to, I need to take a little sabbatical over here. No, like shit is happening. You have got to continue to react. You have to continue to soldier on. And so I think that is a really interesting opportunity for tension and urgency that is built into the reality of the play. Good on you. Well, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk a little bit about your first play, which was Yes to Nothing. And that was in, was that in 2017 Mm -hmm. that that one was performed? Okay. As you're moving through Year of the Monkey and the development and the production of that, did you find this, did you learn from your first play in a way that informed the building of your second? Yes. And maybe it wasn't always obvious at the time. I, first of all, learned how well Caitlin and I collaborate. Caitlin Wells also directed Yes to Nothing. And, you know, we developed the story together, just like Year of the Monkey, that I really, really appreciated Caitlin being willing to script doctor this with me line by line. Like, we've gone through several drafts at this point, and I trust her. And I trust that the feedback she gives me is all in service of making this better. And I think I'm coming into more comfort as a, you know, forever recovering perfectionist that it's it's there's no such thing as perfect. So put it out there. She's going to give you feedback and you're going to both make it better or make, you know, make it more aligned with this bigger vision. I also noticed a similarity with my tendency to edit myself before putting anything on the page just like oh i need to whatever comes out of my fingertips <laughs> it needs to be perfect and i'm not a great judge of that mm-hmm. a lot of the time or 
some things that I think are complete throwaway nothing. Caitlin is like, that is the thing. One day with Yes to Nothing, I was just in a mood and I was ranting. And I just sat down on my computer. I'm like, this, this, that, that. Rant, rant, rant. These long monologues for each character. And I'm like, there is no way this is going to stay in. But I just need to get this out for my own personal reasons and she was like this, it became like the best part of the show <laughs> not only did it stay and became like my favorite moment mm-hmm. and then similar with with you're the monkey i have the scene about about a snake and i don't even really know where i was going with that or what i you know the symbolism you know i wasn't really there i knew that uh the, the green beret is one of their nicknames is the snake eaters i'm like okay cool like let's just do a little snake riff see what comes out like, oh, this is crappy. And Caitlin's like, the snake is the thing. I'm like, mm-hmm. is it is? <laughs> okay. So, it, you know, and Caitlin said several times, I struggled. I really struggled with the show. I feel like maybe you can identify with this that the show that you're working on in many ways is a metaphor for what's happening in your life Dude. at the moment. So and- real. <laughs> this is when we like hashtag real life playwriting oh, experience. So, right? Vietnam quagmire no clear end what am i doing here like these are the thoughts that i was just having about the show i wanted to quit so many times i didn't trust myself i didn't trust my voice i didn't i just couldn't i couldn't really allow myself to just let it rip and write i really really struggled and caitlin was like i can tell you are editing yourself like whatever you need to do if you need to to get drunk and write like just mm-hmm. do it like open the faucet and it that was a that was a fight but it, i i just kept showing up i just kept showing up and maybe one night yeah maybe i did <laughs> have a couple <laughs> extra drinks and just like let it go um but you know here we are it's just again one foot in front of the other well it sounds like you found a person who could help you it's what you're talking about with this whole hierarchy thing, right? You you found somebody who could help you step into the fullness of yourself as an artist and encourage that and support it and kind of you could walk that path together. And she was able to, from an outside perspective, see some things that you couldn't see because it was up so close, you mm-hmm. know, and finding that person in yes to nothing what a gift. And then your ability to hold on to that relationship in the second effort. I mean, Caitlin is in New York City yes. right now. So you have been collaborating long distance for a while. What has that been like over the miles? Mostly great. You know, we talk as frequently as we need to, you know, but, you know, the communication is either phone or email based for the most part, texting, all this. But uh, it w- it wasn't the same as with Yes to Nothing when I could just drive over to her house in Durham mm-hmm. and we could sit there for an hour and riff and come up with things. Um, it needed to be more structured, like, hey, we're going to have a phone call on Tuesday at 7 p.m. or whatever. But nevertheless, I always felt energized and inspired after our conversations. Uh, so that that indicated to me that that I trusted her and that you know this is this is a real partnership because mm-hmm. we both fed each other in that way. I hope I don't want to speak for you, Caitlin, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I know that's how I felt. Well, speaking of structured conversations, you were able to attend some residencies together, which were like 
really intensive meetings. Would you talk a little bit about what that was like to attend with another person? Absolutely. Well, and I have no other frame of reference because I've never done a residency before. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm grateful that Caitlin was there because I think I thrive on structure. We spent f- uh, four or five days at a residency called Drop Forge and Tool in Hudson, New York. And from the moment we walked into that space, I was like, this is special. Like, I could feel it. I could feel that the space, the air, it just had, it had a charge to it. And maybe that sounds weird, y'all, mm-hmm. but believe me, I felt it. And it was like, this is a space where people come and create. And now I'm here. And whatever they've made is like hanging out in the ether and like, like let it feed you. Uh, so... When we were in New York, that was the first time since we started talking about this show that we were actually in the room together Mm -hmm. to work on it. So, you know, over a year, probably 14 months. And the way that worked was, you know, we went into the residency with what, you know, the latest draft of the play. She read it, gave me notes. I would like absorb the notes, go for a run, come back sequester myself and write for a few hours and then kind of rinse repeat and then so the next day she would read what I had written give some notes on that and then I would take that process it go do my thing and Mm -hmm. we just and while she worked on things like finding a lighting designer and sending out emails to people she wanted to cast and use sort of the the nuts a lot of the nuts and bolts production things um it was just great to be there with each other and exist in a space this this I was so grateful for and didn't really know it would be a thing till I was there it was I was so grateful to exist in this space with no external distractions like unreal if I'm looking at my phone it's because I'm choosing to look at my phone I don't need to I don't even need to take my dogs for a walk I don't need to do anything except be here and do my work and that was intensely freeing to, you know, I've found that I need to get into writing mode, you know, whether that's through music or a physical activity, you know, something that kind of gets my brain off of its hamster wheel. And to be able to hold on to that feeling for days at a time, Mm -hmm. (laughs) instead of like 20 minutes here and there when you can like shoehorn it in, what a gift. Mm-hmm. Unreal. Like, we got so much done. I feel like we got six months wor- worth of work done in five days. That's, yeah. like, not even an exaggeration. Yeah. That dedicated time is so special and not having to be pulled out and then refocused mm-hmm. and pulled out and refocused. That's such a waste of time mm-hmm. in life, I find, that those constant interruptions and to remove those, as you mentioned, oh, it's so – makes such a huge difference. So – I have a couple of questions about the the content or the topic, some of these themes that you are writing about. And the first has to do with this exploration of feminine intuition, nature, ritual. So you could have done it without that. We could have done this play without that element and and really focused in on solely on the horror and these question these these questions around hierarchy and and all of that kind of stuff. But there is this foundation of kind of the what I'm gonna call the feminine 
that holds up this play, that exploration of that. Why did you decide to go there? What is that all about? Like, what does that mean to you? I love that you think that I decided to do anything. (laughs) Trust me. Well, it just happened. Trust me, I didn't. Trust me, anything that feels like it's a, you know, all caps, big thing, that's Caitlin. Mm -hmm. That is Caitlin Wells' ability to, like, see big picture. Like, this is what the snake represents. I'm like, I have no idea what the snake represents. And and I think just to, to echo back a little bit to the stuff we were just talking about, once it started to become clear that we were wrestling with big topics, I think that's when my, not writer's block, but just the hesitancy came in because like, I don't have any answers. I don't, I don't, I'm not qualified (laughs) to speak on these big topics Um, and, and censoring myself as opposed to just speaking from my, speaking with my voice. Mm -hmm. I, by way of not answering your question, but perhaps being interesting, mm-hmm. <laughs> two things two things jump out at me about the, maybe how this all ties together. Um, one is building off of the horror th- idea that, you know, s- some of the ways that you manipulate this environment are through um, sound. And I... Music, rhythmic drumming, chanting, like these are ways to evoke altered states of consciousness. And I'm really interested in that, you know, for me to get into writing. I was listening to a lot of Black Sabbath, like heavy stuff, just because it it's scary. Mm -hmm. Like if you I love it anyway. um, Secondly, this play is so much about grief and loss. That's me speaking. You know, other people will (laughs) see whatever they see. And during the writing of this play, I lost my grandmother, who's very important to me. And I come from a big Catholic family. And at the risk of being a little bit of a morbid story, we're at her wake and they are praying the rosary. And it's not something that I ever I ever actually did growing up. But I'm there. My my dead grandmother's body is four feet away from me. And we are involved in this chanting for about a half an hour. And at the end of that, I got to tell you, like, I felt like, whoa, Mm -hmm. whoa, that was an intense experience. There were no substances involved, but I could feel it just it like the membrane's real thin right now. Whoa. So I uh, thought that was an interesting idea to bring into it. Um, And another one perhaps around this question of femininity or just I don't know what other way to talk about things. (laughs) Each character has sort of an out-of-time monologue at some point in the show, you know, a little bit about their backstory, where they're from, who they are. And all, all of there were four of them that were at least partly drawn from either my own experience or something from my life or the person that I know or whatever. But there was one that was just like made up. And every time Caitlin was like, God, that one, I just there's something about it. Like, it just isn't working. Mm-hmm. I can't quite tell what it is. Like, you're, it's almost there, but not quite. She's like, would you just read like try something else? And that was for me a like kill your darlings. Like, mm-hmm. absolutely. You know what? Yes. And I blasted out this other option that was something very personal. 
And she's like, that's it. Because I was speaking, you know, from my own heart. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the other one was like, rearview mirror, bye-bye. So it it was interesting to me that she she didn't know that that one that she was like, eh, was just one that I was like, no, let's let's invent something. Mm -hmm. But then when I said something that was real. Well, it's so interesting, right? The the things that you're talking about have so much to do with, you know, our bodies and what – is what else do you have in war, right? You, it's such a physical, emotional, primal experience. And so rooting down to that level of, you know, our relationship to our environment and our relationship to blood and our bodies and other people's bodies and what it's it's a hard place to use your brain, mm. right? Mm. In war, you I imagine you use other powers as well. And so I think those are really interesting questions to be able to kind of tease out like, well, what what else are we using um, in those kinds of situations? Because it's not, you know, when we're in fight or flight or flee, we ain't using our higher level thinking, right? So what are we using and what are the potential, I don't know if I want to call it upsides, but what are the potential upsides to using our non-higher level thinking. Like, you know what I mean? Well, and that's actually an early question that Caitlin and I were rolling around was in a traditional war environment or a you know hierarchy as we think of it, um, these skills are valued. You know, being strong, being, un, you know, da, 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 da. what if, and the things that are more, Aligned with being feminine, like soft skills, mm-hmm. are dismissed or caretaking, not, caretaking, and, right. not valued, uh, not valued. What if they are? What if in this scenario, we see that those are the real strengths, mm-hmm. and being inflexible or strident, that isn't going to get you anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I think that that's also where you know the Vietnam War is a you know metaphor allegory that works for me because here we have Americans going to a jungle thinking that they can do things like the way they've always done it and they aren't even aware there are people living in tunnels all around you all up and down this country working night and day men and women women children everybody you know that who haven't lost communion with their environment. And, you know, I'm sure there are places in the United States that have jungle, rainforest, but our country isn't a jungle, you know? (laughs) So even if you have a connection to the land, it isn't like it is in in Southeast Asia, (laughs) straight up. So what do we do? We go over there and we dump fire on their country. (laughs) <laughs> and on on nature so that we can see people so we can kill them more efficiently so i i'm interested in theoretically humans we evolved in our environment like this connection to the land to to the to nature exists within each one of us but through you know for most of us who have grown up in in towns and cities and, you know, we didn't grow up sleeping under the stars every night with, you know, we had indoor plumbing and all these modern conveniences. We've, we have lost the connection, but it is available to us. Mm-hmm. Should we be interested in relearning it? 
it is theoretically there. What does it mean to work with the jungle or the environment as your colleague, not as something that you're fighting against? Mm. There's also the flexibility and I would say the high level of vigilance that I think at least in our culture is demanded of non-men in order to exist here in our culture you have to for safety reasons right there is this sort of constant vigilance that reminds me of soldiering right and the the, the flexibility that is required to exist and move around in the world because it's a lot about dealing with what is handed to you and not necessarily being able to initiate, <laughs> but it is to it's very reactive, at least I think in, in our current culture. And those are things that, that came to mind when I was reading your script as well as something that um, whether we like it or not, we might contribute to a certain squadron of warriors. Well, and, and thinking about parallels to war and, you know, I haven't been in a war. That's a difference between yes, from yes to nothing to this. Like, I was in a punk band. I can write about that. I, I know that. I lived it firsthand. I haven't been a soldier, haven't been in a war. But I will be bold and say that I think to be a woman, a female-bodied person, anybody who exists inside a marginalized identity is to be in a war on a daily basis. Because you live, we in this country, live in a culture that says to us overtly, straight up overtly, but also in insidious and unlimited subliminal ways that you are, your body, your personhood is not worth the same as other people's. And the process of awakening to those realizations like you you kind of always know on some level like you're a girl and you're gonna have to deal with all these other things but the older I get and the more that I realize how much I have internalized my own oppression and you know the system that I exist in how and how it oppresses other people yet I have to function and live because most of the time if I think too much about that stuff I will either put my fist through every wall that I see or I will never stop crying mm-hmm. and neither of those is a you know a viable option for me because I want to be a functional human but once you know that stuff at least for me speaking for myself you you can't unknow it right you can't unknow that this is why women don't speak up about sexual violence whatever it might be mm-hmm. Like, I can't unknow that. So how do you how do you both deal with that on one side of your brain, but just, you know, go to the grocery store right. on the other side? Right, because you have to keep living. And it seems like a lot of, well, some of the questions that your characters are dealing with in Year of the Monkey is this idea of awakening to, I imagine as a soldier, at the back of your mind, you know there is the possibility that you could be collateral damage. You could be a casualty because really what you are is you're feeding the mill, right? You're you're in the grind of war and you could be sacrificed at any moment and that people are willing to do that to you, right? And so it's waking up to not accepting that that is just a-okay. And then how do you resist that? Um, and I think that these are questions that we ask in our non-war lives, and I imagine that are also being asked in the midst of real wars. 
when you're not completely in the midst of battle fatigue. Right, 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 <laughs> right. When you have time to process, right, right. Well, I just, I think of, you know, I watched the Ken Burns, Lynn Novick Vietnam War documentary mm-hmm. twice, nerd. <laughs> and, you know, think listening to these, you know, in, in this case it is all, all it's men, American men, um, who were Marines at Quezon. And he said, I talked to my mom on the phone and I said, I'm not coming back, mom. She's like, no, you're coming back. You're special. He's like, I'm putting pieces of special people in body bags. Everybody's mom thinks they're special. Right. But how these people could can do that, you know, deal with a dead human body over and over and over and over and over. The, the friend that you had breakfast with that morning and come back to America once their tour is done and be expected to live a normal life. Like, I just have goosebumps all over. Like, right. it's just... And we're it's unfathomable, really unfathomable to me to to imagine that as a as an 18, 19 year old person. Ugh. Which brings me to the question of horror. Mm. So when I think of horror, I think of the like, you know, What's the what's the mask thing? The scream, you know, the, oh, sure. like the uh-huh. the knives with yeah, the or like Halloween mask and Freddie and yeah. Jason and, yeah, all and of Mike those. Myers. Yes, Mike that's Myers. what I think of when I think of horror. Number one and number two, I also think of the fact that there is nothing I would rather see less <laughs> than a horror film. Like I literally, I don't even want to be in the house when it's on. Like I want nothing. I don't want to see the movie posters. Sure. I don't want anything to do with that stuff. It scares the hell out of me. Just thinking about it right now, I feel frightened. So, and I know some people love this stuff. What do you think people love about this? And why do you want to put this on stage? Like, what? <laughs> what's the upside for coming out <laughs> for coming through that kind of experience? Oh, um, well, I think of The Shining. Like okay. when I think of a horror movie, which I won't watch either. That's side note. Legit, <laughs> it's awesome, but it's you know it, it's different. It isn't the like oh, and I close the medicine cabinet door and the guy's right behind yeah. me. You know, this yeah. the jump scare slasher flick is is one you know one subgenre bran- one right? one branch of this family tree. But I'm really interested in the like psychological, like ooh, you know, The Shining is I'm. I'm secluded in the middle of nowhere, and I'm just slowly going crazy. Like, ooh, yes, tell me more. Um, what is the upside? I, I think for people like me, for people who actually do enjoy these kinds of movies, there's some kind of catharsis about it, and and doing, and seeing it in the theater or with a group of people. That's why girls you know, watch horror movies at slumber parties when we're little, because we can all go like. Ee! <laughs> but we're together mm-hmm. and we're okay. And this is just on TV. And, it, you know, I was a scaredy cat little kid, too. Like, if we watched The Lost Boys at a slumber party, like, I wasn't sleeping that night. <laughs> Straight up. <laughs> um, but I think th- there there's something about, you know, part of theater, too, is like going through an experience together with the other people in the room. It's never the same show twice. So the people who are there on Thursday night are going to see something slightly different than the people on Friday. And what they're bringing into the room is part of that. And, you know, going to a horror movie, people could be screaming or laughing, Mm. but it's sort of a communal experience of, you know, I watched Hereditary last fall with a good friend, and like we had to pause the movie. You know, we're grownups. We're like, we need a break. We need to take a little break right now. But it it was a different experience to watch that with a friend than to watch it by myself. 
I don't see a downside. I don't I don't understand your question. <laughs> <laughs> to put on my Well, and it's just life is a horror show. You know, yeah, like not, not to be grim or anything, but every life is a horror show. No every human being is going to go through death of people we love or animals we love or traumatic experiences. Nobody escapes life without that. Even if it's in a campy way or a over-the-top way, it gives us a little room in our brain to deal with this thing that's a reality, fundamental reality. And not pretend it's not happening. Yeah. 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 So what are you hoping for from this performance at the tank? Sort of, I feel very similarly to how I felt with Yes to Nothing, like, it's already a success it's for me. I don't know. It's the people who are working on this, the actors, the the, the things that they've said, the, the the way that they have brought themselves to the process already, their excitement level. Like, oh, this is great. I don't need a thing more. This has been an interesting experience for me, too, noticing that I, I feel like I actually have been able to start detaching from external validation in a way that feels really good, that... I I don't care what happens because for me, it's already a wild success and we haven't even had a rehearsal yet. The cool thing about New York is anything's possible. Anybody could see the show. Who who knows? Who knows? I think, you know, and that's just me sort of being like, I don't need any praise. But really, I, Caitlin and I have talked a lot about the tank being what it is, which is an incubator and a place to get things on their feet, but it's still in the development process. And if it generates enough interest or buzz, like remounting it somewhere else, maybe the next step up, whatever that might be, if it's a festival, if it's some other theater in New York or somewhere else, you know, we feel like there, there's room room to grow and 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 keep keep develop keep developing the show. I will include links in the show notes so that the folks who are up that way can go see the performance and folks who are here can support you locally as well. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about before we wrap? I'm just always so thankful to talk to you. It's <laughs> always so much fun and I really appreciate everything that you do for our community. Tamara, you are an asset and we love you. Oh, well, right back at you. <laughs> Thank you, Mara, so much. I can't wait to experience this, even though I'm not a horror person. I will show up. <laughs> I will show up for this. Thank you. Hey friends, I want to tell you about Shadowbox Studio, where this episode was recorded. Shadowbox Studio is Durham's flexible, rentable art and activity space. Shadowbox is perfect for video and photo shoots, recording podcasts like this one, and holding movie screenings, classes, spy club meetings, or whatever else you can dream up. Find out more at shadowboxstudio.org. And here's a secret. If you tell them you heard it on Artist Soapbox, you'll get a $25 discount on your first rental. Isn't that awesome? <laughs>